What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, episode 22, where we are going to talk about all things on and off the fireground. Today's guest is my good friend Patrick O'Neill, and he's got a story to tell that you will truly appreciate one of perseverance and survival and recovery thereafter. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks for tuning in. Sometimes it's a smell or sound that will trigger an unexpected return of everything that happened that night in a fraction of a second. The feelings, the smells, the sensation of salt water splashing on my face, and its taste as it poured into my mouth as I tried to keep my head above water. The quiet darkness of that night, accented by the moon in the sky. The feeling of being totally alone in the world, being completely scared to death and not knowing or understanding what just happened. A few moments before, I was the one afraid of dying and leaving my mom behind to live the rest of her life without me. But now, I must hold on to the only thing I have left of my mom, her lifeless body. So, Patrick, this is a paragraph out of uh, an essay that you wrote, briefly illustrating some of the feelings that you had the night that you lost your mom. And I wanted to talk to you uh, about that and about, you know, resilience in general and about, you know, how you've come so far. Because the man that I know, uh, you know, when I first met you, I never had any idea that you experienced that. So, you you know, I don't know if you mask it or, or, or what it is that, you know, how you manage to be so uh, gregarious and happy and full of life and yet have had this pretty heavy tragedy, man. So, yeah. Yeah, man, I, it's not something that I've ever really broadcast a whole lot about. Um, it's my life and there's nothing I can do to really change it. So it's kind of, you know, bad things happen. Sometimes life just sucks and, you know, everybody wants to live a perfect life with two parents that are married and have this great, wonderful thing, but that's not in the script for everybody. You know, the um, things are going to happen and I think going through what I've gone through and learning how to deal with the bad stuff when it happens ultimately defines who we are. And I think the building blocks that we have earlier in our life can set us up for success or failure. And I think you have to take ownership in your life at some point. And then no matter how bad something is that you just went through, you can either let it sink your ship or you can let it build up your ship so that you go on and, and, and do more with your life. So, so tell me this. Why don't you tell me the story? Um, all right. So we'll kind of give you the shortest version I can. So we, we're working off of the internet here. You can, we can go all day if you perfect. Want. <laughs> so I was 15 years old. I was a freshman in high school. Two years earlier, my mom, who was like absolutely emphatic in love with the ocean, decided that she wanted to get scuba certified. So we went out and got scuba certified when I was in middle school juggled that in between club soccer and everything else that was going on. And we got certified a couple of years later, she wanted to take it up a notch. So we went to go get our advanced dive certification. And so we did same group of people that we did all of our dive intro dives and all that kind of stuff. Carl was our instructor. Great guy. Is this a, like a group of friends or no, it was just something that she found through Nawi in a UI underwater scuba diving company. Um, they used to have a national certificate. I think they still have, they're still around. I just 
I haven't done it in a long time. But yeah. so it was just uh it was you we got in with one dive group and then we were kind of always going on these dive trips with the same people. So it became like a close knit group of friends slash almost like family. Cause we went on so many trips together anyway. So my freshman year, um, we were getting our advanced dive certification. We did all the textbook pool stuff here in Arizona. And then we went back down to Rocky point, Mexico, where we did all of our dives from, cause it's a quick drive and you know, the housing and all that stuff works out really easy for, dive certification down there it was march 29th uh, 1996 i was 15 years old and we were going on our night dive and looking back one of the biggest differences with this dive in particular than any other dive is my mom and i got paired up as partners we had never been partners before i'd always been with like a more senior instructor and she was always with somebody she had like a little bit of anxiety and fumbled around a little bit with them, some of the equipment. She was great with the book stuff. Took a day out of school to go down there and do this dive trip. And uh, we did a dive earlier in the day that was supposed to replicate the night dive where you did a, you walk in at a boat ramp and then you swim out based off of um, how long your dive is going to be off of how much air you have in your tank. And it was like an underwater, like uh, navigational course where you followed a compass. You went out X amount of minutes. We did a turnaround as a group communicated with a grease board underwater and flashlights and then we would come back on the night dive on the same course and end up hopefully back at the boat ramp that we left off of and for anybody that's been down to rocky point if you go to manny's there's um, a big dirt lot next to it and there's a boat ramp and then there's like a trailer park and it was at that boat ramp where we did this dive and since it was a night dive they set up a strobe light so that we could see where we were swimming to because it's i mean there's not a whole lot of light down in rocky point mexico at nighttime especially on the water's edge and um so we we were matched up and the dive went really well at the beginning entered the water charted our course we swam in a group we all had glow sticks on our back and then flashlights pointing forward and you know rocky point's not known for its water clarity so if you get 20 feet away from somebody they they disappear pretty quick especially at nighttime so, um, water was cold. Um, me being a freshman back then, I was 125 pounds solid cross country runner. So <laughs> I didn't lack a lot of insulation. So I usually froze on these dives. Um, and we went out and we did our turnaround and did our little grease board communication and everybody is on their way back within a couple seconds of swimming back. My mom, I think she looked at her regulator and she felt like she was low on air and she was low, but it wasn't like dangerously low. Like she we probably could have swam most of the dive back before she needed to actually come up. But, but I think because of some of the anxiety stuff that she had and nervousness, she indicated that she was low on air. I noticed it. I went to turn back to our dive group. When I turned around, they were gone. And it was just like, can't see glow sticks. Can't see flashlights. They're just gone. Turn back around and my mom's gone. And I'm like, okay, go back to training when something changes, instead of trying to swim underwater looking for somebody, you go to the surface. So I went to the surface, and on the way up, I could I could see her. There was a pretty well-lit, moonlit night that night, and I could see her up there as I was going up. And the water depth was only, I don't know, maybe 30 feet at the most. So I get up there, and she's uh, f- filling around with her uh, BC, the buoyancy compensator, which is a life vest that you fill up so that you can float and you can add air to it when you're underwater to hold buoyancy. So you're, you're not 
trying to swim up or down. You can just, you just swim at a nice, even level underwater. And every time she would fill it up, it would deflate. And she tried like two or three times, fill it up and the air would just blow out of it. So I went over and I grabbed it and I'm like, let me try. And so, um, I inflated mine, no problem. And hers deflated again. And I think we tried that one, one or two more times. And I don't know what the hell was going on, but it just wouldn't hold air. And so she was panicking a little bit, you know, treading water on the top. So I just said, Hey mom, I'll pull you up on top of me. So I pulled her up on top. So I got her tank sitting up on my chest. And so her head's up there and you can see the strobe light. It's felt like a mile away. (laughs) And we're like, let's, let's get going. And we started, we started kicking and the whole time she was talking and no complaints, nothing talking about the dive. And here I am getting pushed underwater and I can't decide if I'm going to have my regulator in my mouth, out of my mouth waters. Like I'm swallowing so much salt water. And there was a, there was a time where I was just like, dude, I'm, I'm going to drown right now. Like, like I might die here. And because of just, you know, my size and her weight pushing me down and everything. And she's just talking about the dive. Like, hey, did you see that octopus underwater? And see all the phosphorescence and the stingrays and this and that. And I'm just like, yeah, mom, I saw it. But can we focus on swimming? (laughs) And I kept looking over my shoulder. No divers, no divers. Swim a little bit, no divers. And and all of a sudden, one of the times that I went to look over my shoulder for the dive group, I I felt a change. And... Looking back on it now, I felt that was the moment that she died. And the only reason why I say that was because I couldn't see her face. I couldn't see anything. But all of a sudden, when I got done looking over my shoulder back, the amount of weight that was sitting on me suddenly felt like it quadrupled. Mm. Um, her arms she weren't... She probably stopped kicking. She, she probably, stopped kicking. Her legs were just floating. Her arms were floating out to the side. Um, and because of my position, I couldn't see her face. But right. I knew at that moment that she was gone. And I don't know if it's, you know, just the closeness that we had because she was a single mom raising me and we, her whole life was me and my whole life was her looking back on it now. And, you know whether I physically felt her body leave, which is kind of what I, I feel now is what happened is I just knew like something, something drastically happened and she's not coming back. And at that moment I just was like, what do I do? And I'm like, I got to swim her back to shore. So it just was at that point where you, did you, you know, were you yelling out to her? Are you trying to get her to um, figure out what's going on with her? Yeah. I think I yelled a couple things. Like I tried to shake her like mom, mom. But again, she's like propped up on on top top of me and I, and there's very little I could do. And I think at that point I kind of slid her off a little bit. So my head was above water a little bit more. And so I, I just grabbed her and started swimming. And, um, initially when it happened, it felt like it was all really quick, but as time has gone by the time that I swam with her to get her back to shore seems a lot longer than it initially felt and kind of doing some research and doing counseling and stuff like that. You find out that sometimes your body just, your meant your, your brain will dissect out certain things and it'll mm. time can get distorted. So what yeah. might've been two seconds could feel like 10, 10 hours. 
right. or something that was just two seconds could get stretched out, you know, or vice versa. However, I was right. saying that. And so I just kept swimming with her and looking over my shoulder. I was yelling for help. Even though I know nobody was on the surface, I didn't see any of the other divers. And finally we got to a point where we were pretty close to shore and I saw the rest of the divers pop up and I just screamed at the top of my lungs, help, help my mom. She's dead. And Carl and another guy, um, they came swimming over. And the first thing they did is they dumped her weight belt. And I look back on that and, uh, because my mom and I didn't have a lot of money, I knew the first thing I should do when you're in distress is dump the weight belt because that's like 40 pounds that suddenly you don't have to carry anymore. Right. But we didn't have a lot of money and I was like, if this is not real, my mom is going to be pissed that we have to buy right. like, like a new weight it's belt. It's interesting how we, like in distress we rationalize and, and think yeah. and some of those things that like, yeah, that's a really interesting yeah. and problem. The f- first thing Carl says, he's like, did you dump her weight belt? And I'm like, no. And he's like, dump the weight belt. So he dumps it and he's like, Hey, go swim to shore. And I'm like, no, I'm not leaving her. And I argued back and forth. And he's like, look, get your body out of the water. How far out on the shore were you from? Probably 50 yards at this point. Now we're relatively close. And I think it was to a point where because of the shallows and the rocks, they could stand up. Cause I, finally I just like, okay. And I was freezing. My teeth were about to chatter out of my head. And, I swam to the shore, got out, and immediately some woman from that trailer park comes around and she's helping me get out of my, you know, my fins off, my, get my, my air tank off. And I'm still in my wetsuit and she just wraps this giant beach towel around me. And I turn around and they're trying to do CPR on her in the water. They're dragging her out. They pull her up on the boat ramp. And it was kind of surreal because there's this like lone street light that overlooks that ramp so her body was like perfectly illuminated on this boat ramp while they tried for 25 30 minutes doing cpr just chest compressions you know and in mouth to mouth and waiting on first responders or whatever yeah and you know eventually an ambulance showed up and uh i was i held on to a grudge for this for a long time and it finally let it go but this ambulance shows up and the guys walk down and they have a they just throw like a bag valve mask down on the ground and my dive instructor, Carl, and another guy, they had to figure out how to put that thing together. You know, I mean, if you're not familiar with the training on it, it's like, so they they put it together and they're trying to like bag into her mouth and everything. And at one point after like 20 minutes of CPR, she threw up. And the whole time I'm sitting next to her, I'm holding her hand and I'm just, you know, crying and praying that this isn't real. And I'm praying for my mom to come back and, you know, nothing's changing. And after she throws it up, I'm like, okay, this is going to be over. This is going to yeah. be like a horrible nightmare and everything's going to be fine. And then, well, the movies will have you believe that, yeah. you know, somebody drowns, right? And then a couple minutes of CPR and they cough it up and off. They're automatically good to yeah. go. And, um, and I just, you know, the distinctly remember all of a sudden her, her head just kind of flopped to the side. And yeah, it's another thing about the movies, you know, is when people are dead, their eyes are always closed. And that's not the case. You know, a lot of times they're halfway open. Or, right. You know, and and I just remember looking into her eyes and just there was nothing there. And I knew that she was she was just gone. I mean, when you look in and you see that lifeless body, it, it you'll never forget it. And um you know, and I I knew at that point like she was gone. And 
the last moment I had with her was somebody finally kind of, they walked me away from her and they put her on a stretcher and they put her in the back of the ambulance and they asked me, Hey, do you want to spend some time with your mom? And I was like, yeah, but I was kind of confused. I'm like, is she breathing? Like, did something change? I didn't really know. And I was really confused. And I sat in the back of an ambulance and it was probably an old Phoenix fire department ambulance because you know, they sell them down to Mexico down there. And I just remember sitting in there and the lights didn't work. So I'm just in this like dark ambulance with my mom's, you know, body. And I sat there for a few minutes and I prayed and I just apologized like over and over again, because I felt like it was my fault. Like I should have done something different and, Mm. you know, and then, and that was it. And they, they drove away and we went back to the dive shop and had to start trying to call people and, the States and try to get a hold of my dad who lived in a small town in Nevada and, you know, get that whole thing going. And the next week and a half was just, it was intense, you know, battling with Mexico to get my mom's body back. And, you know, it was, it wasn't easy. They kept charging more money and, you know, turned into a bartering thing. At one point it was only going to be $500. And I think we ended up costing a couple thousand to get her body back and they embalmed her down there. So they, that means they did the autopsy down there and, her cause of death says she asphyxiated on her own vomit. And because I was with her, I know that's not, that's not what happened. So looking back now, it's like, I have no idea why she died. I never got an autopsy here in the States cause they yeah. harvested her organs and they kept them down there. And you know, to this day, it's like every time I go into a doctor's office and you're doing family history, they're like, okay, so what happened? Your mom was 52 and she died. What? And you go through the whole thing and it's just like, yeah, we'll never know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, conjecturing is kind of a fool's errand at this point, right? That, what, that, what difference does it make? Right. Um, knowing, knowing what I know, I mean, my mom was relatively healthy. She wasn't overweight. She was, you know, 130 pounds, five foot nine. She smoked. That was probably her only downfall. But mm-hmm. she got a physical the week before, and everything was fine. You know, they did an EKG workup, and they're like, yeah, you're good to go on this dive trip. And, you know, and here we are, you know, yeah. 22, 23 years later. And, um, still, still no answers. <laughs> never yeah. going to come. Yeah. You're never going to get them. Right. So man, that's a, that is a, you know, I know there's a lot of people who have tragedy in their life and it's, it's really, um, I appreciate you taking the time to unpack that a little bit and kind of share the story. The, cause I look at, you know, like I said, I don't remember if we were recording or not at this point, but you know, we talked about. You know, I, when I first met you, I'm like, I would never have any idea that this is the, the, the history that you have, right? This difficult trauma in your life. So, you know, and you know, you're a captain on the Phoenix fire department now and you've, you know, by all, by all measures would consider you a success. Right. right. And so, so the question is how, you know, does, how does 15 year old Patrick recover from that event and, you know, 20 some years later, you know, have a, you know, a family of his own and be successful. Um, you know, over the last two years, I've done a lot of reflecting and I think it's because of, you know, I'm a parent myself. I have a six year old and a four year old and not that I think I'm going to die tomorrow, but because of what I went through, my perspective is, is it's pretty unique, I think. And and I know (laughs) I say that I have problems and I, and I realize that I have problems because of the way I, I, I look at life and I, you know, I hug and kiss my kids probably way too much if that's even possible, but <laughs> I don't think that's possible. You, I'm gonna say that right you now, just but. don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and, and that's the thing. And so 
like two years ago, I started kind of doing the self-reflecting. I was like, God, what if something happens to me? You know, I work in a, a job that has danger. Um, would my kids ever know who I am? So I, I sat down and I started writing kind of like a story, call it a memoir or something, um, for my kids. And it ended up being the most therapeutic thing that I had done since my mom died. Mm. But when I did that, I started doing a lot of self-reflecting and I realized that there was a lot of things that were done in my life earlier that set me up to get through that. And a lot of that had to do with my mom. I never gave her enough credit until I started writing this down. I always, you know, thought my mom was an amazing person and, but I never fully gave her as much credit as she, as she deserved, you know, being a single mom raising me, she instilled an incredible work ethic in me. She, um, had high expectations. I mean, if I didn't get an A in a class, <laughs> you were failing, you know, she had, she had a plan for me to go to the military academy. I was going to be the first person to go off to college in our family. And she's like, Hey, you're going to, you're going to finish boy scouts. You're going to become an Eagle scout between your junior or your sophomore and junior year of high school and your junior year and senior year of high school. You're, you're not going to visit your dad anymore. You're going to, we're going to do internships with state legislators and senators here in Arizona. I mean, she had a plan. She was, she was working on that. And she's like, you're going to like, she, she, she had actually had a plan for me to, and she was calling in a family, fa a family favor from um, one of her cousins who was a Colonel in the air force to see if I can intern for John McCain, um, Senator John McCain. And she, that was her plan. She was like, you're going to college. So you better decide if you want to go to the Naval Academy or the air force Academy. And that was just how I was raised to kind of go back and answer your question is, you know, what did I do to get through that? And, um, I didn't have an easy life. My parents were divorced, you know, since before I was two. So my, and my dad lived in a tiny little horrible town in Southern Nevada with an extremely high teenage pregnancy rate. And it was like, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. There. There's nothing to do. So <laughs> except make babies when you're 15 years old. Right. Yeah. Um, so, Everybody in the family knew that moving in with my dad wasn't an option. So I moved in with one family, lived with them for two and a half years. Very grateful for my experience with them. Unfortunately, the relationship dissolved. But looking back, I was part of that reason why that dissolved. But it was a two-way street. You know, when a relationship fails, it takes two. Yeah. I've Well, that's a pretty big burden to put on yourself, you know, at, at, you know, at 15 years old. Yeah. You know, and you're going through this massive trauma in your life and you're expected to toe the line on this on this relationship that you're thrust into. Right. That's And the family moved in with they were great. They had a daughter that I grew up with. Are these relatives or No, they were just family friends, you know, the okay. the dad owned a carpet cleaning company that I cleaned carpets for when I was in middle school. And, and when I, when my mom died, I was still cleaning carpets for him, making, you know, okay. like $10 an hour or something like that back in the day. And, yeah. um, they lived close by and everybody was like, Hey, this is an easy transformation. It's close to the house that he grew up in with his mom, same neighborhood, same, same neighborhood, school. same schools. Um, yeah. they offered and it worked great. Like I said, two and a half years, it was, it was amazing. And the last year that I was with them, it, things started to just fall apart and call that a, a teenage boy living in their house, which they weren't used to, you know, um, but there was certain things that just happened. I was asked to move out of their house right before my senior year of high school. So then I moved in with my cousin on the west side, 75th Avenue in Thunderbird, and commuting to Arcadia was not 
ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no freeways and like this, all that. So another family took me in and this family I grew up playing soccer with. And, you know, to this day, they're, they're an amazing family. They're the family that my kids know as grandparents. We do a lot with them. Um, they live a few blocks away and I'm extremely thankful for their support and everything. So those were some things that I had as a support to, to kind of help me get through that. And none of it was easy. Like I said, you kind of getting kicked out of a house right before your senior year of high school (laughs) doesn't help. So what did, did any of the adults in your life at that point suggest you go and talk to somebody, get some therapy, do anything to (laughs) help you process this at all? No. And that's one of the things that I've kind of looked back and I'm just like, you know, I, I think everybody doesn't looking back. I, and I don't blame anybody. I have no hard feelings for anybody that was in my life, family or anything being like, you should have done this. Like I've never pointed the finger and said like, I'm messed up because you didn't do this or I've, you know, but knowing what I know now and actually going to counseling through the fire department's EAP program to kind of unpack some of this luggage that I've been carrying around. It's like, somebody should have been like, all right, this 15 year old kid just swam his dad's mom's body out of the ocean. Red that's, flag. That's a trauma. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he should need help. My personal perspective and was that everybody kind of said, well, he's 15. He's almost 18. And I, it felt like everybody kind of took one step back and just, I felt like a fish in a fishbowl. And everybody said, if he needs help, he'll ask. Mm-hmm. And nobody abandoned me or anything, but nobody came in and said, look, you, you know, I, I look back and I think my dad should have stepped up of all people right. and said, Hey, you're going to go to counseling. You no questions asked. You need to talk to somebody about this. Would it have helped? I think so. I mean, it definitely would have, you know, going 22 years later to counseling and it helps. So I think going sooner, it probably would have helped. So to go back and kind of answer your question that you asked a long time ago, since I've gone on all these little sidebars, but one of the biggest things that I've learned is to be resilient, you have to have perspective. And, and, and I look back and I think there's two things that helped me immediately. The moment my mom died, I mean, instantaneous within moments of her passing. The first thing is, is I was raised in a home where we went to church. I was baptized when I was eight years old, Episcopal church. And I just, the first thing that I told myself was, you know, God has a plan. And if he didn't think I could handle this, he wouldn't have done this to me. Okay. So immediately I was like, somebody thinks I can handle this <laughs> and I got this and it, it helped me confident wise knowing that I was going to get through it. Right. And the second thing was I needed perspective and it's kind of really weird story, but a few years earlier when I was in middle school, we watched channel one news had Lisa Ling and Anderson Cooper on as like really young correspondents, you know, and they covered the Rwandan genocide. And if you don't know what the Rwandan genocide was, is basically you had two tribes that lived together. And all of a sudden overnight, one of them decided that they were just going to murder all the other people from the other tribe. And during that interview, I mean, there's dead bodies all over the street in the background of this like news clip. And they were interviewing this eight, eight or nine year old girl. And she hid in like floorboards or a closet or something in her room. And she watched her whole family get butchered by machetes from this neighboring tribe. Right. And somehow this girl had a glimpse of hope on her face and the way she answered questions. And I, I don't want to say she smiled cause I don't think she smiled, but there was something about her that was like, I'm alive. Things are going to like, I'm still grateful. Some I'm going to be okay. And for some reason I, I remembered that and I was like, okay, what I just went through sucks. I mean, 
are you kidding me? Like, I just lost my mom this way, this manner. Yeah. And I was pissed. I, I was angry. Like, I was dealing with instant anger, frustration, um, you know, asking why and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, you know what? Somebody's gone through something worse, and they're going to be okay. They, they were okay. Mm-hmm. People have gone through worse things, and they, they go on to do amazing things. So those two things, I think, kind of coupled themselves right away to help me early on because I was just like, okay, what I just went through sucks, but it wasn't as bad as what that girl went through. And I used that for perspective, and I kept telling myself that over and over again those first couple months because I needed perspective. I'm like, don't feel sorry for yourself because somebody out there has gone through worse, and they ended up okay. And I just beat that into my head, and I've done that over the years. And looking back now – if I look at every book that I've ever read, <laughs> no offense to the Harry Potter fans, never going to read Harry Potter. I'm never going to read a fiction book. They just don't interest me. What I find myself constantly being reading about are books about people who have overcome amazing things. You know, people who have gone through tremendous hardships and they've risen above. And what I do is I need that. That's my fuel. That's That's what I've turned to over the years to keep my perspective right so you keep you know? going back and dipping into that well to 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 recognize here i need a, a splash more of perspective so you ladle some more on and go, okay right you know i'm looking at this big picture and maintaining a perspective of you know the tragedy and disaster that could be right you know it's interesting you say that because I, I i hate when guys are going through guys and gals anybody is going through a difficult time it's really inappropriate in my opinion to come in and go yeah, but it could have been this or it could have been that or at least this. Like At least your life is, you know, at least you're alive or at least, you know, and you still have all these opportunities or whatever, right? I call right. it, you know, you know, putting the silver lining on something, right? Right. Um, it's. I think it's inappropriate for me to get in and come to you and say, hey, here's the silver lining. Right. But for you to recognize the silver lining in your own difficulty, I think is healthy. And to recognize that, yeah, this, this, bad thing occurred in my life. However, I still have air in my lungs and I right. still have a heart beating in my chest. And if I know I can, you know, there's a Les Brown, uh, he's this motivational speaker. He says, he goes, if you fall down, land on your back, because if you can look up, you can get up. Right. And so I think about that, like, yeah, that's perspective. If I can see life, if I can see the clouds in the sky and I can see the sunshine or I can, whatever, that means there's hope. Right. There's something that I can do differently. There's always a, an opportunity. However, you can't tell me that. I have to arrive at that on my own right. for it to be of any value. Right. Which is what I hear you saying. I well, and I, I think a lot of it comes by example because I don't think it helps to go around beating your lungs saying, look at what I've overcome. Look at, you know, and, and to be kind of put yourself, I, I don't know, on a pedestal or say, uh, what am I trying to say? I guess, I guess the biggest thing that it's like, you know, I think it's more inspiring when somebody looks at you and says, Holy crap, I didn't know you went through that. How did you do it? You know? And now you can sit there and say, well, here's what I did. Here's, here's how I became where I am today and right. didn't let it sink my ship. Well, I think what you're, what you're doing is you're by telling your story, you are providing perspective for another person who's going through a shit storm. Right. Right. So I'm in the middle of the storm. I can't see the tip of my nose because it's so cloudy and miserable. But then I listen to somebody else who talks about their story and I go, you know, 
I, and again, this is where the person going through the event has to arrive at something. Yes. And right? I take the, I take the power of your story and I go, okay, I know that he went through this. He was at the bottom of the possible barrel, you know, and yet has risen out of that. Right. Climbed out of the barrel. And how did he do it? Exactly. Um, you know, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. And, you know, I love quotes like that just because, like I said, what I went through was pretty traumatic. And, like, you know, people, once they hear about my story and they know about, like, all the other stuff I went through. You know, my dad died eight years after my mom of lung cancer. But I had abusive, drunk stepmoms, like like nothing about my life says that I should be where I'm at, you know, cause so many other people have just like fallen and they use those things as crutches to say, well, I can't do this because my, my mom died, you know, right. this happened to me and that's my excuse to not better yourself or keep going on. And, and that's where I do get frustrated with people because when people start doing the poor me card, it's kind of like, Oh dude, like I get it but you have to figure your way out of that on your own. Like, just like you're saying, you can't force that upon somebody. Somebody has to be able to want to sit there and say, am I going to let this be what sinks my ship or what's going to help build my ship up stronger? You know what I mean? Right. Um, this last summer I got asked to go speak at a teen grief camp. Um, my brother-in-law, he's the camp director for it. There's this company in town or not a company. It's a nonprofit organization in town called stepping stones of hope. And there it's, it's an amazing organization and they offer grief camps for people of every age and they come together in these camps throughout the year and they learn how to process dealing with grief. Well, I was, I was pretty honored that my brother-in-law asked me to come and do a 20 minute guest speaker deal on it. Right. And he's like, Hey, you got 20 minutes, tell them your story and just kind of tell them kind of like what we're talking about. How did you, how did you not let it be what ruined your life? And, um, so I did my thing. It was the first time I'd ever really opened up and talked about it. And, um, the instant feedback, all of a sudden there was these teenagers that sometimes it would take a day or two of camp to kind of get them to open up and start diving into some of these topics and questions and stuff. Like all of a sudden it was just like, okay, here's somebody who went through something pretty bad. I can relate to them. Now they don't feel alone. They're, they're like, okay, other, other people have gone through bad stuff too. Right. And when you get that and it's like all of a sudden, okay, how do they do it? Now I'm going to ask them questions. So like afterwards I was kind of bombarded for, you know, like 15, 20 minutes by kids. And eventually they had to say, Hey, okay, kids, you got to go to your groups and do your breakout stuff. But you know, they wanted to stick around and ask me even more questions. Like, Hey, you know, like tough questions. Did you ever think about suicide? You know, did you, and and, you know, those are real questions. Um, and you know, how do you process that? And I think, being able to listen to somebody say like, here's my crappy story. I made it. And this is what I've done. You can too. You just got to find your own tools and maybe you use mine because they work for me and maybe they work for you, but not everybody uses the same tools. Like, like one of the biggest things that I think was therapeutic for me was, you know, like I said, I was a scrawny little cross country runner while I was on the track team. All I wanted to do was get back to running. And I can't tell you how many miles I ran where I cried (laughs) I ran through anger. I ran through all the emotions and I was just like, there were times I'm just like, dude, I, I gotta go. And I just go for a run. And that helped me immensely having that physical outlet. 
Running it, running has been a form of escape for me over the years too. Is a, yeah. it's a place to kind of go and be in your own head and and you know just. Oh, I work out all kinds of out, dilemmas yeah. in my head when I go for a run. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to talk to my wife about this. What's the best way to do it? You know, what? I'm going to go for a run and, and hash this out before I bring this to the right. table. Before I open my mouth. Yeah, before I, I open my mouth. My sneakers. <laughs> before I opened up, open my mouth, end up on the couch. I better uh, go for a nice five mile run and then change my perspective. <laughs> right. So yeah, but you know, I, I think the biggest thing is just you know everybody's going to face hardships at some point in your life. Nobody's ever going to make it through life without dealing with some sort of loss or death. It just, it's a matter of when, when and how does it happen? You know, is it watching a parent die from a grueling, you know, drawn out cancer experience at a young age? Or is it, you know, being fortunate enough to watch your parents die of dementia at the age of 90 and you're 70, you know, people are, you're eventually going to lose your parents, you know, and you're eventually going to lose loved ones. And it's, it sucks. It's a, yeah. it's the ugly part of life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's the, one of the things that is really true in life is that it's freaking hard. Yeah. And and you are guaranteed to have difficulty. Now, my personal perspective is that that's the point. Right. They, this is the refiner's fire, right? You are, you are on this earth to learn and grow and develop yourself. Now, I don't care whether you have a, a religious, you know, eternal perspective that there's this heaven or whatever, or whatever it is you believe. Right. Either way. The point of you being here isn't just to suffer. It's right. to learn from your sufferings, right? And to grow and be stronger and, and more effective and to, you know, whenever I get in a, I'll use my, my wife as an example. We get in a, I get in an argument with my wife. We are better as a couple once we've resolved that difficult situation. Right. And we've been through some, you know, some tough situations in our life. You know, early in our marriage, she got in a really bad car wreck that nearly killed her and that was this, like this, how do you recover from that? What do you do with that? You know, was I going to, am I able to be a good husband and, and help, you know, lift her up and, and, and buoy her up as she's going through these difficult things. And we went from this couple that could, was very physically active and whatever. And then all of a sudden her foot was smushed to, you know, into oblivion. Yeah. And now our life is totally different. Right. And we still hike and all this other kind of stuff, but it's not the same as it was if we were perfectly, you know, healthy, healthy right? Like yeah. perfectly healthy. Um, and so. Well, that's a trial for a marriage, right? That's yep. a trial for a young couple at 20. We were married early. So as a young married couple, these are these trials. And right. we, you become a stronger couple when you work through these things. You become a stronger individual when you have these difficulties in your life and you find a way to work through them. Because that that process of working through it allows you to be... Um, stronger and better for the next event that takes place. Right? right. Or for when you have children and they have events, like how do you cope with that stuff? Right. It takes practice and you're building a skill set over time. Well, you know, having a support network is, is huge. And if you don't have one in place, like, I mean, like, like I said, my dad lived out of town and I did, I had some distant family that lived here, but it just, you know, over the years they've come up to me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't offer to have you come live with us. We should have had you come live with us, you know? And, you know, and it's, it's hindsight now, you know, where they've, where they realize like, you know, we should have done more for you. But right. I think, I think a lot of times it's like, you know, people don't know how to, how to handle that type of stuff. And when you're dealing with what I went through, okay, it's like, okay, you have a 15 year old kid, his mom just died in the way that she did in the middle of the ocean. Right. And he had to you know, swim her body back. And I think people get a little bit scared because nobody's comfortable dealing with and talking about death. Totally. And, and people 
I think a lot of times people just have the mindset of, you know, time heals all wounds and time does help heal wounds, but guess what? <laughs> you need some other stuff. And while that time is happening, um, yeah, I think radiation and, and life trauma have the same thing in common. It's time, right. distance and shielding. Right? Yeah. 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 No. And, and some people it's like, how do you talk to somebody? You know, right. How do you, it's very hard. You know, people were very apprehensive to talk to me. Like, how do you ask me about my experience? How do you ask me when I'm 15 years old? Like, Hey, do you want to talk? It was just like, if he needs help, he'll ask. Right. He seems like he's doing okay. Right. If we see something, we'll, we'll intervene then. Yeah. Instead of being proactive and actually saying something. And, and, you know, after talking to that grief camp and, you know, writing my story down and now having the opportunity, you know, on, to be on, on your podcast here, you know, I, I'm feeling more and more impassioned about this, that there, there needs to be something done or resources out there to help people that go through severe trauma because people don't like talking about it and they don't know how to talk about it. Like we just said, sometimes they'll just take a step back and, and not be as proactive because it's hard. I mean, how do you expect people to have these conversations? You just don't. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. I think teenagers, honestly, they're more resilient and they're, they're more capable than what we think they are, but they still need, they still need help. Okay. I'm 15 years old. My mom dies. I'm going through like stages of puberty. I'm, I'm growing like, a, you know, you're going through those emotional changes. You're starting to figure out your identity. Do I really believe in God? Do I not believe in God? Right. You know, I'm at school dealing with drama. Like there's all this stuff that's going on. And then all of a sudden you throw like a very traumatic death in there. You don't think that that needed more help probably did. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like I said, I don't, I don't have a, a bad feeling for anybody for not putting me in counseling. I think it was just a, kind of the sign of the time. And my dad, he was an old cowboy. You know, he was 71 right. years old, breaking horses when he died. He looked like he was straight out of the movie Lonesome Dove or Open Range. I mean, that was him. You know, he was Gus. And um, <laughs> and when my mom died, he came into my room after he flew into town. And I was, I broke down and I was crying out in the living room in front of some family and stuff. And he, I ran back to my room at one point and I was just like, I hate this because family was starting to bicker. What are we doing with the funeral? What, what are we going to do with the house? I mean, all these questions were being asked and right in front of me, you know, and it was just, it was too much. And my dad, he came into my room and he goes, Hey, you're a man. Now you cannot cry. Your mom just died. You, you are now an adult. You, and at the time, guess what I did? I stopped crying. I wouldn't cry in front of anybody. I just, mm -hmm. I shut everything down. I cried my eyes, you know, till they were dry every night by myself in my room, put my head in my pillow and just, you know, that it was looking back. It was, a, I was a mess. Yeah. I would go on these cross country runs, track runs, and I would just cry. And, um, but I never did in front of anybody. And I look back and I'm like, you know, my dad, <laughs> that's one of those ones where I'm like, dad, you missed the boat <laughs> Yeah, you, to, to, to come in there and, and say that. But he grew up, you know, he was born in 1933. He was an older parent. He was 48 when I was born. Yeah. You know, he was a recovering alcoholic of almost 30 years at the point that he died. And he just, he never had those parental yeah. in touch day-to-day -day skills to help me. Um, but that was his mindset. And I think that was a lot of mindset for those people that came from, you know, that older generation. I mean, look at, Look at World War II vets. Look at the people that fought. And I mean, they're tough and nitty as, 
as they can possibly be. And there was just a different breed from that generation. Right. Well, it doesn't transcend over to a kid born in 1980, you know, that times have changed. Yeah. Look at where we are right now with millennials well, and you everything. Know. It's like, <laughs> we just keep evolving. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's, we can, I think it's safe to say that, um, we all need to be a little tougher and a little grittier. Um, however, there are things that we need to process and, you know, that toughness, just saying, Hey, man up, cowboy up, suck it up, you know, whatever. Yeah. I've, I've said it a lot in my lifetime yeah. to people and, uh, it, it doesn't, it, it just throws a, a bandage on the, right. on the problem. It doesn't actually help that person get through it. No. You know, sometimes you just have to, you have to cry and, you know, I'll tell you, man, uh, well, it's been two years now. My brother and my dad died a week apart from each other. So I remember when that happened and, uh, the, you know, it was funny. I was dealing with my brother and I'm like, okay, this, I, I got this, you know, it's going to be okay. And then my dad died and I, I was in bed for like 48 hours and, uh, not knowing I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this is. What the hell is this? Yeah. Right. You're numb. Yeah, I literally was like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go train. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want anything. Yeah, and and I didn't know what to do with that. Right. right? And so it's it's interesting how now we'll tell you the uh, the brothers and sisters on the job uh, reached out to me in a tremendous way. Text messages, Facebook messages, phone calls. You know, dropping by. You know. When I showed up back at work, arms around my shoulder, and you yeah. know, it was amazing. And it, and you know, a lot of folks were like, "Hey, man, if you need anything, let me know." Which all I needed, which funny is like, and I don't really need anything, but I needed them. I needed my brothers and sisters to just acknowledge me, right? right. And then I know you're in the middle of a shitstorm, yeah. And I know that hurts, right? But that level of love extended out. Right. Was what I needed. Right. That was what I needed. I didn't even want someone to come cut my grass. I didn't need, I don't have any grass in my house. I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need, you know, I didn't need someone to go buy me groceries or whatever. I just needed to know that I was, that I was, people were acknowledging the guilt, the grief and difficulty that I was having. Right. And so, so when we talk about what do we do for people who are struggling you know, I think of the, you know, the pit of despair, right? You, you get in that pit of despair and you're just present. Yeah. And you're with that person and, um, if they want to talk, you let them talk if you know, but don't try to, don't try to fix it. Right. Well, you can't fix it, you know, and, uh, everybody says that's the man mentality is when there's a problem, you fix right. it. You know, that's a problem with most marriages. And everybody, you mean our wives? Yeah. yeah wives just want, <laughs> they just want a voice. They want you to listen, you're yeah. like, but we go into fix it mode. Yeah. Um, real quick, you know how you were saying how the fire department, wrap their arms around you when your brother and dad died. And I had a very similar experience and I wasn't even on the fire department. I was doing ride alongs down at station 28 on a shift with, uh, Tim Kenobi, oh, I love Kenobi. um, Steve white, Jerry Johnson and Tom Mahoney. Oh, and I love all those guys. I missed, like I would go once a month to that station and do ride alongs. And I, I didn't go for a little while cause I was dealing with my dad's death. And they had asked one time when I finally came back, they were like, Hey, what's, uh, we haven't seen you for a while. What's up? And I told them, and immediately, all four of those guys <laughs> came up and gave me a giant hug individually. And it was just like, dude, this is this is amazing. 
Like, you know, and, and you could see the way the fire department, I, I wasn't even on the job. I was, I was doing a ride along there and I was probably their worst rider they ever had because I didn't <laughs> understand the rules of riding or anything, but, um, that's how this fire department is. And, you know, and, and, yeah. and because of our job and what we see every day in and day out, we see the worst of everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, how many times in our career are we going to see death all the time? And we were great at putting up our barriers for the calls that we go on, but we open up our barriers when one of our family members on the job needs it. You know what I mean? Just yeah. because we're, we understand, you know, we, we got that job experience and we got that life experience where you, you know, when somebody needs help and, um, and you know, that's, and, and, and that's another thing too, is, you know, looking back at, at this job and seeing all the stuff that we go through, man, it, I mean, it's, it, it it does take its toll on you. You know, you're starting to hear guys talk more and more about it and they're just like, man, just, you know, you get on the job and it's, I think part of the reason why we get on this job, but everybody's excited to see the gross stuff. You know, when you first get hired, there's that something you're not happy that it's happening, but you're like, dude, I want to see that. What does that look like? And we've all been there. You know, there's, there's not a guy on the job that hasn't gone through that where they're just like, Oh dude, let's go see it. And then you see it, you're like, Oh God, that was a human being, you know? Right. And then, you know, fast forward after a while, it's just like, dude, I could care. I do not want to see another dead body, you know, but you're here. I am 15 years into this job and guess what? I'm going to see a lot more. So how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, you know, and it's, it'll wear on you, you know? And, and you know, it's just, you got to figure it out. But I think the department's doing a great job with the EAP and getting counseling and, and helping guys and, and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And I recommend anybody out there who is going through anything, doesn't matter what, if you feel like you need help, you've been on a really bad call and you think you need counseling, go. I mean, guys are talking about it more and more at the station. It's not a taboo thing. I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, no, you don't go to counselor, but I think we've evolved as a department now where it's acceptable. And I mean, there's conversations where a couple of guys at my station, we've all been to counselors, whether right. it's been re- related to personal stuff or job related stuff. And you come back and it's like, oh yeah, they did this at my counseling. And now you got, you got more of a community to talk about that stuff among. And it's a, it's a resource. You need to take advantage of that. Right. And, and, and I can tell you after burying my stuff for 22, 23 years, it's good to finally get it out. You know, when I sat down and wrote that thing that I called it dead weight and it was the first thing that I ever wrote regarding my mom's death. And it was, I just spoke into my phone on the notes app, you know, and it was just from the heart. And I can't tell you how much that peeled things away. Yeah. And I can tell you right now that I've screwed up a lot in my life. You know, I'm very thankful for where I'm at. I, I have a, you know, a beautiful wife, you know, we've been married for eight years. I have two kids. We have a a nice home and a nice neighborhood. And I'm very, very fortunate for everything that I've had. And I've, I've already surpassed both my parents and everybody in my, in my life. It's a family as far as home income, being able to have the the stuff that we have physical stuff, but man, I've, I really screwed up. There's some relationships that I've damaged because of how I was between 15 and, you know, 30, I didn't start really, understanding stuff until I got around 30, but you know, selfishness processing relationships. Like I close people out, you know, and I look back on it and a lot of it had to do with what I went through when I was 15, you know, there was, there's been a price to pay. It hasn't always been rosy. There's been problems where I've not handled stuff right in my marriage because of, because of what I went through. 
And I can look back on it now and it's like, now that I'm understanding this and peeling off the layers and, you know, went to counseling and, and, and I'm starting to understand it more and kind of look at it. I'm like, man, like there's, it hasn't been a smooth, perfect road, you know? And I don't know. I, I think if anybody can get into resources, um, iron sharpens iron. If you can find a group of people that is, that's around you that can help build you up, who've been through tough situations, use them as resources, talk to them, get them, get involved with them. And, you know, and, and the other thing I can say is just get that perspective. Like I said, I, the books I read all keep perspective for me. And if I don't have those books to read, I can see where my mind starts to wander. And, you know, after 22, 23 years, there's, there's stuff in my head that I don't like, and it comes out and yeah. I need to battle it. And, and, and like I said in there, you know, it, it could take a smell, it could take, um, one thought, uh, just one thing in that whole night on March 29th, 1996 goes through my head in a, a second and all the feelings, the smells, the taste, everything. And it, it's, I relive it every single day. Yeah. I'll, I'll never not think about it. You know, even on my wedding day, on the days of both of my kids, it was like, you know, I was like, God, I wish my mom was here. Well, guess what? My last memory of my mom was that night. Yeah. So anytime I think of my mom, boom it goes through my head and you just, you, you got to fight. <laughs> it's ugly yeah. and, and you got to battle it. Yeah. It's real. Mental, yeah. mental stuff is, is real. You know, you, you mentioned that a kid at the, um, at that camp asked you a question or you said they asked you a bunch of questions, but the one question you mentioned was that they asked if you ever considered suicide. Yeah. Um, so I, I never considered suicide. I never wanted to kill myself. Um, but I certainly wondered what it would look like. Like I never, I never said I'm going to kill myself today. Like I just can't take this. I'm depressed. And I, I was never there for a couple reasons. One early on, I had the perspective of what my mom had done to get me where I was at. And the first thing I thought of was, I was like, what's, what's the worst thing I could do for my mom's memory. And that would be to end end my own life. It's extremely selfish, you know, being on the job, we've seen suicide every which way there possibly can, you can imagine. And if I had committed suicide, I feel like, because I believe like my mom <laughs> would whoop the crap out of me in heaven. She'd be like, what the heck you, you're better than that. You're stronger than that. You had this, like, there's no reason. And I wasn't going to do that to her memory at all. The other thing too, and I talked to this, this, this kid about it, this camp, cause they said, they asked that question and I said, well, did I think about it? I never thought about doing it, but I wondered what it looked like. And I said, I encourage you to think about that because people, they want to end their pain instead of battling through the pain. And it's a hard road and there's resources, there's things out there that you can do to get through it. They just want it to stop. They want instant gratification for it to stop. And if killing yourself is the way to do it, then that's what they do. Um, but I told this girl, I, I said, Hey, you know, your, your, your dad committed suicide, right? She said, yeah. I said, and you still have a brother, right? She said, yeah. And you have a mom, right? I said, yeah. I said, okay. So if you commit suicide, what is that going to do to your mom and your brother? Cause they've already lost one person to it. You don't think that that's going to mess up your brother. And I said, how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it at home? And where your brother is going to find you, because if you want to talk about really messing up his life and increasing his chances of someday committing suicide, 
that's what's going to happen. Your brother finds you, your mom finds you. You want to talk about ruining their lives for the rest of their life that they had to come in and find their lifeless sister or daughter's body, or say like you go someplace in the middle of nowhere and do it. Some stranger finds you. What if that person's never seen a dead body? And now they're so traumatized by a 15 year old's dead body that they're in counseling for years. You know, you're the ripple effect from suicide. You're going to destroy more lives than just ease your pain. And her eyes got really big, really big. She goes, Oh my gosh, I never thought about yeah, it. That now way. She has a, a true visual for the impact. And, and I said, nobody thinks about that. They're, they're being selfish. They're thinking about ending their pain and they're not thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah. And she thanked me for that. You know, she goes, I can't thank you enough for, for explaining that to me. Yeah. And I said, well, don't commit suicide, but think, you know, the, that's the reality of it, you know? And, and I hope it made a difference with her. Um, I think it did. I think, you know, seeing the look on her face, I, I definitely, I definitely got in her head with that. Yeah. That's a, you know, clearly she was asking because she was probably having thoughts, yeah. probably pondering that stuff. And it's, you know, you said something really important there, which is you got to battle through, right? And, you have to. And it's, I think part of the reason people consider taking their own life is because they, they lose a sense of perspective. They can't see it any other way. Right. And so, you know, I feel like anybody who's in that spot where they can't see it any other way, you've got to f- go find somebody who can help you gain perspective. Right. Right. F- get a counselor, go talk to a friend, something, right. There's a great, uh, a fire, a fire service, uh, artist, Paul Combs, uh-huh. and he makes these great depictions of, you know, issues in the fire service. And they show there's one where dudes, there are two bros sitting in the back seat of a fire truck. And the one guy's got a, uh, sign on his neck. And I, I think it says I'm considering killing myself or something like that. And the guy's looking over at, you know, the other guy's looking over at him, re- kind of reading the sign. And the reality is that the signs are never that obvious, right? It's right. kind of what the sub, the subtitle says right. on the bottom of it or the, the caption. And so it's, it's, in, it's incumbent upon the person who's struggling to reach out. Right. Right. But we also have to be very mindful of one another. Right. And, you know, think about the, pay attention to your brothers and sisters on the job. Yeah. You know, pay attention. The, uh, you're not, you are not just a coworker. Right. Right. And it's, you know, this isn't just somebody you, you spend a day in the, who's in the cube next to you. Right. Right. And I mean, you know what, even if it is, be a better human being, <laughs> right? Right. Be a brother, be, be a, a sister to that person and, and look out for one another. Right. Cause on this, uh, re- again, regardless of what your belief system is on this planet, yeah, all we have is each other. Right. No, you're a hundred percent right. And I mean, you know, we went through our fair share of suicides of, you know, a few years ago on the fire department and it was just, it, it was devastating. I mean, yeah. you know, and you saw the ripple effect and you saw the changes in the department with the EAP and the counseling. And, you know, they started looking at all the different stuff on what they can do and they started throwing resources at it. And those, all those resources are phenomenal. And, it, it, and, you know, if you are struggling, take advantage of those, you know? Yeah. I mean, life is, life's not going to be fair at times and you have to, you have to battle when, when, the shit gets really, really bad and you don't think you can go on anymore. Start thinking about your loved ones. What's a better example for your kids to see than you overcome something that was 
insurmountable. You know what I mean? Looking back and it's like, what's the best way that I could honor my mom? And that is to go to college. So what did I do? I went to ASU and I got a side job and I worked as a student worker and paid off the rest of my student debt, but I got a degree. Now, am I using it? No, but <laughs> I'm on the fire department. I'm sure you're using it in some way. Shape, um, but I did that for my mom. You know, that was like, that's what she wanted, you know, is she wanted somebody to be, she wanted me to grow up and be successful and everything I've done in the back of my mind, it's like, you know, some people have those things. What would Jesus do? I'm like, what would my mom want me to do? And, and, Mm -hmm. and, and I've kind of lived a lot of my life that way. Like, okay, would my mom want me to give up right here or work hard? Because she worked her butt off, you know, she worked four to five jobs just to make sure I was in club soccer. We went scuba diving. We went to California every year to visit family. Like the amount of hard work that woman had in her and what she left in me, taking the easy way out and not working hard. It's not an option. It's not an option for me. Right. And you know, like, you know, my perspective, you know, you know, guys will say like, (laughs) it's kind of a funny story, but one of the guys at my station not too long ago, He's like, oh, your air conditioning went out. He's like, how much is that going to cost? I'm like, nah, 9,500 bucks. And he's like, oh, dude, that would kill me. And, I, and he's like, why, are, why aren't you more upset by it? I'm like, dude, <laughs> I've been through way worse in my life to be worried about a $9,500 air conditioning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. This is easy. Like, and again, it's perspective, right. you know? Right. And it's just something trivial that you see. And it's just like some, it's like, okay, what's, what's your perspective on this? Right. Is it bad? How bad is it? Your car broke down. Okay. Yeah. What, what could be worse? You know, sitting on an IED and having all four of your limbs blown off and trying to figure out life after that, because there's a guy out there who goes around doing inspirational podcasts and speeches. His name's Travis Mills and his story is phenomenal. And it's like, you think you're having a bad day? Listen to that guy. Your day will go from bad. (laughs) Okay. Right. This is easy. I got this. He might might make you feel bad about yourself because he is such a, uh, a pillar of strength yeah. and it's overcome so much. Yeah. You're like, okay, I'm a big giant sack of weak. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because exactly. You know, he's suffered so much adversity and yet managed to put a, uh, managed to see the upside of it. Exactly. And get to a point where he's on the upside of it. Yeah. He makes um, jokes about himself and I yeah. mean, he, he's, he's just got such a great outlook on life. Right. You know? But a hundred percent, that guy had to go through those difficult times to yeah. be able to gain that positive perspective. Yeah. One of the, you know, the, my fireground fitness, one of the slogan is, uh, there are no show crowd. <clears throat> Let me say that in English. There are no, <laughs> I can't say it. There are no shortcuts. Thank you. There are <laughs> no shortcuts. And that's the reality. You know, you talk about right. having to get through difficult times yeah, there's not an easy way. Yeah. You have to push through. Yeah, um, everybody wants that easy button from what, what was that business store or office? Whatever. Yeah, the easy office button. Max or like, <laughs> that doesn't exist. No, it, it absolutely doesn't. And that's so. You know, I think that kind of summarizes exactly what we've been talking about. Man, is is there? Is life is full of difficult challenges? Yeah, and at some point, you have to turn toward those difficulties and lean in. Right. Well, and yeah. And I mean, for me, just, I think kind of the last thing that I want to say is like, you know, my kids are everything to me, um, to have two of them, a boy and a girl, like I'm extremely blessed. Like they're amazing. Like I live for them. And it's like, because of what I went through, I just want to fill their lives with nothing but experiences. And when they get older, 
I'm going to have that hard conversation. I'm going to say like, okay, Hey, here's what happened to your dad. You know, you need to understand what I went through and this is what happened to your grandma. And this is, and your dad, you know, hopefully I'm a great example for him. Uh, that that's my goal is just to be a great example for my kids and, you know, be an amazing husband and my wife. <laughs> Those are good goals. Um, but that's, that's it. It's just, Hey kids, this is your dad. This is what I've been through. Nothing you go through in life is going to be hard. We got this like life. Life is good. We got this, you know? Yeah. It's going to hurt, but it's going to hurt. But you can persevere. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, let me ask you this. Is there, um, if anybody wanted to reach out to you and have them, have you come speak at their youth group? Where would they contact you? At? Oh man. Um, yeah. So just, you know, probably email is the best. Um, it's a PTK O N L at yahoo.com. Um, you know, I've done a couple of these now and it's, it, it's, it's therapeutic for me, but you know, hopefully, hopefully the message is good and maybe I can bring something to somebody else. So that'd right be awesome. On. I'd love to talk to you. Right on. Well, when you finish writing your memoir, we'll, uh, you'll hear it here first. <laughs> yeah. Writing, writing something is pretty interesting. It's an interesting process. So we'll, yeah. I'll let you know. I, I have no idea where this is going, but you know, there's been a lot of things that have kind of fallen into place lately where I'm like, you know what, maybe I, maybe I should be pursuing my, my life story and maybe it can be used to help other people. Maybe there's a message that can be brought out and, and to help others. And if that's the case, so be it. I'm going to see where it goes. I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing, but this is one step and I can't thank you enough for being on here, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. I think that, uh, you know, just like you are grabbing onto other people's, uh, other people's histories and stories as, uh, inspiration and catalyst for you. Likewise, people are going to do the same with your story. So I appreciate you taking the time to share it and, and meet with me. Well, thanks, Rain. My own brother. Appreciate it. Special thanks to my bro, Patrick O'Neill, for sharing his story with us. And special thanks to you for tuning into this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't already, go on out there and subscribe on whatever platform uh, you like to listen to podcasts. Also, go on and get on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast, leave a review. Uh, your feedback will help us make this better. Anyway, take the lessons we learned here today. Focus on how you can improve yourself, things you can do, the little tiny things you can do to help yourself be healthier, both mentally and physically, and go out there and get some. <laughs>